Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking and I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about anger, anxiety, depression, isolation, honesty, and kindness. I've been thinking about societal norms and the falsehoods they propagate. We're living in a time of such depth of universal personal struggle and despair that those who are willing to focus the magnifying glass on themselves, explore the inner and outer workings of their lives with honesty, are our most valuable guides to a healthier and happier existence. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Terry Cheney, and she is one such guide. Her new book, Modern Madness, an Owner's Manual, is the focus of our discussion. Welcome, Terry, and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, uh, thank you, Ellie. I just want to start by just saying thank you um, for sharing so much of your journey. I-, I learned so much about bipolar disorder, and I also oh. feel like the the struggles that you talk about um and i think you could write a dozen books there's so many um elements and and subtleties but that it's relatable to everyone especially now you know just your experience is so much more amplified because i think your right. existence being so so sensitive and feeling things so much more intensely you know you have such uh, a, a more difficult struggle in so many ways because it is so amplified, but it's certainly, I think, relatable um, to to everyone and and anyone who. That, that's always amazing for me to hear that it's that it's more universal than certainly I ever thought it would be. But uh, I belong to a writing group, and that's where I started really testing out my stories. And they kept telling me, "Boy, I feel this too, just maybe not as intensely as you do." Yeah, and yeah. that that is so reassuring. And and in a way, like you're forced to to deal with it, right? Like you can't look away. So many uh, other people, I think, I they, yeah, they 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 find ways. You know, maybe they they drink or they overwork or they overexercise or whatever it may be. But like, there's some way that they can look away, and and you really are not given that that um, luxury. Well, I certainly did try to look away for much of my life. I hid my illness from everyone except my doctors. I spent most of my life in hiding. So that was a kind of looking away. But um, now that I'm out of the closet, so to speak, no, I I try to deal with it directly. And I'm I'm so much happier doing that. Yeah, I just think about that. I think, one, what a talent (laughs) that you were able to do that. (laughs) Incredible. Um, But also the energy that it must have taken um, away from other areas of your life to to, to have to spend so much energy in in hiding it and... and, um, you know, focusing on that energetically. I think that's something that I've finally come to learn is that hiding a secret can be worse than a secret itself because I was so terrified. I used to be a pretty successful entertainment lawyer representing people like Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones and the major motion picture studios. And I just was absolutely living in fear that someone would find out that I had bipolar disorder and that I'd be fired or ostracized or I'd never work or love again. And then when I finally did come out about my illness in my first book, Manic, um, which to my amazement became a New York Times bestseller, I was stunned by the amount of compassion and support and just encouragement that I got. I never would have thought the world was so kind. 
It's interesting, like just how much energy and time we spend um, from fear of the repercussions of of hiding what's true, right? right? And and trying to ignore right. it or or alter it, and 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 we might want to change it, but like the first step is, yeah, like we have to acknowledge what's true is true. Like that is the one maybe yes. universal truth, right, that stays with us our entire lives. Like in that moment, whatever's right. true, and, you, you know, it is. Um, we can we can try to run. Um, so your third memoir, and then, and then oh, you. I was just going to say, and then you free up all that energy yeah. that you spent hiding and you can use it to cope with what's going on. So that was a lesson I learned. Uh, I wish I had learned many years before. Well, and that gift too, like, as you said, that the thought that we have of how people are going to react or what's, what are the consequences going to be of us acknowledging that truth. And I, I think so routinely we're surprised to be wrong about that, right? That it's, it's always, there's always some gift um, in just acknowledging what's true, as, as hard as it can be. It's, it takes a lot of faith, but then your faith is so well rewarded. You think you'd learn it for the next time you hear <laughs> yeah. something, but unfortunately you don't. Always. No, it doesn't work that way, right? You're like, really? Can no. I, do I still, I still can't trust. I still can't believe this. Right. And no, like, no, it's too scary. Um, so right. with your third memoir, you, you approached it with a little different take, um, and chose to use the framework of an owner's manual. And as I read through the book, like I, I kept thinking about that in different ways, like, you know, whose own owner's manual it was and, and how it was different for, for different people in it. And that it was an owner's manual for, for everyone reading it in, in a different way. Um, oh, I love that. Thank you. Yeah, it wasn't until the end I thought, well, I thought, oh, it's an owner manual. When I started owner's manual for people with bipolar, and then I thought, no, it's an owner's manual to like, you know, understand people in your lives with. And then I thought, no, it really is an owner's manual for everyone um, in right. dealing with their struggles. And, and, and a big element, of course, like the, the more obvious one is to educate the public on what it's like living with, with bipolar disorder. Um, and you and- see... Oh, and other illnesses, other illnesses as well. I tried to expand out to other mental illnesses because it really, I realized finally, uh, I'm not just bipolar. I also am part of a much larger community, which is the mentally ill and all of those who care about and are affected by them, which is pretty much everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so many more people, as you mentioned, like during, the, after the quarantine and dealing with COVID, like it's going to be a whole new ball game um, for our society. You know, again, our society yeah. as a whole is not going to be able to look away um, as we as we have often wanted to do and chosen to do. And I think that that gives me a great deal of hope. Actually, I, I it's ironic, but I think the fact that so many more people are experiencing depression and anxiety and fear right now, they're living on a day-to-day basis with what people with mental illness are so used to living with, you know, their whole lives. And I think that's going to raise awareness and compassion for mental illness. Or That's my hope for the future, that we will have uh, less stigma around the issue. You know, I was thinking about that a little bit this morning, and I'm, I'm just going to explain it in in the way that I intend, but that the amplification um, of of the experience of those with with mental illness um 
is a reflection, like not only, as I mentioned, for like each person, but for society, right? Like, yeah. and, and yeah. as you're saying now, like it gets so big where either in our own lives or um, in our family or in our community or in, in the, the society as a whole, like we cannot look away anymore, right? It's like, nope, you have right. to deal with this. It is in your face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You said you finally reached a point not only of acknowledgement, um, but also of ownership. So it's also your owner's manual. Um, <laughs> how has that changed your life? Like that shift of of owning it? Like what, what does that mean? It's been so transformative um, to just accept that this is how I was made and this is there is a reason probably that I was made this way. It gives me a sort of a meaning and purpose to my life to feel that, well, yes, I have this illness that has driven me to extremes, um, including suicide attempts, but yes, I've also survived those suicide attempts, and there must be a reason for that. And it, to me, the reason is that I have this ability to explain what's going on, so maybe I can help other people or witness the pain that others are suffering um, and just make it somewhat more explicable to people because it's such a mysterious, mental illness is so mysterious and frightening to so many people, and owning it really means it goes beyond acceptance. It, It almost goes to the point of celebration. Because there are a lot of things about bipolar disorder that have served me well. Um, There's a very high correlation between bipolar disorder and creativity and intelligence. And my empathy, which was not very developed as an entertainment lawyer, I think I can say safely, um, has just gone through the roof as I've read and been told so many stories by people who are experiencing mental illness. So that empathy and humility really were unexpected gifts. And if you're given a gift, you should own it. I'm I'm thinking when you say your empathy wasn't developed as an entertainment lawyer, I I will argue that um, you had that empathic quality and that's, you were utilizing maybe the other side of that coin that was allowing you to be a, an exceptional attorney, right? You have to be able to um, be so aware of other people, of, of the situation and the, the subtleties and, and the experience that everyone's going through to actually be a good negotiator and a good attorney, which I, which you were exceptional. You know, I, I never thought of it that way. Maybe you're right. Um, I just didn't have the softness. Yeah. I had a much harder edge. It's, uh, it's not fostered, right? In the field, it's yeah. not what's fostered. It's not a soft field. I'm I'm thinking about how powerful um, it is, like what you've just said about owning it, and the difference between making that shift, and how much of of people's lives, and especially your life, was spent in trying to be something else and at least conveying the image of being something else. And it was both with your mania and your depression. And you talk about earlier on that the mania was always on full display in public, but not to your early therapist, that you weren't showing that piece to your therapist. And, And so I was wondering, why was it acceptable in public, but not something that you felt you could explore early on in therapy, the, the mania aspect of your experience? 
Well, I think what happens with mania is that you, uh, at a certain level, you feel so good and you feel, you feel like you're perfectly fine. Why do you need to go to therapy? So I don't think a lot of doctors see their patients when they're manic. Um, they just cancel the appointment, frankly, and they see them when they're depressed. And that leads to misdiagnosis as happened with me. I was diagnosed with major depression and it's very often the case, more often the case than not, that it takes up to 10 years to get a correct bipolar diagnosis. And I think a lot of that is because people simply don't go see their doctor when they're manic. And, and don't talk about it. Like it wasn't something that you right. even said, oh, and by the way, like last week, you know. Right. You're not terribly self-aware. At least mm-hmm. I'm not very self-aware when I'm manic. Mm-hmm. I'm not really um, conscious. It's, it's very different from depression. When I'm depressed, I know I'm depressed. When I'm manic, I don't realize it unless my loved ones tell me. I've given some people permission to tell me that I think you're manic. Mm-hmm. But that can be a very tricky, uh, tricky negotiation because you don't want someone to use your your illness against you. You want them to say it with you know concern and compassion, not well. You disagree with me. You must be manic. That kind of thing. And and it seems so full of contradictions. And and in the sense of you know, I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking you're saying you weren't very self aware. People are often self aware when they're manic, and yet your awareness is heightened to an unbelievable level as far as right. your experience of the world. Right. Correct. It is a contradiction. Yes. It, it, it is very strange that you can use. You make connections between things. You feel like you're solving the world's problems. You, you know, you see things so in such bright colors and so defined, and and yet um, you're not aware that you're talking a mile a minute, and maybe your writing is totally illegible. And uh, so there is that that dichotomy, yeah. And the dichotomy as well as like big picture and 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 tiny detail because I remember you were talking about a story in the book in the big con and you describe a meal with an old boss and that you kind of make this plan you're going to go in you know you're manic you're going to go in and and behave as if you were depressed because you know what that feels like and then his silverware is just driving you (laughs) to distraction what was happening his silverware was not perfectly aligned on the table. I think it was the fork that was crooked. And here I was trying so hard to just hold it together and be perfectly, you know, uh, professional. And I was jiggling my, I remember jiggling my knee under the table because I had all this amped up energy from the mania. So finally when, uh, I jiggled my knee and upset his coffee. And when, while he was wiping it up, I reached over and corrected his fork because I just couldn't stand it one more minute. You talk about a lot, um, the, the process of, of self-awareness and then the tactics that you develop to arm yourself for battle and that it like, like not, I think it's the most heartbreaking thing. Like the, I just, my heart just goes out. Like the, the fact that you're all like this constant battle and yes, maybe everyone has yeah. like minor battles every day and we battle with different things, but like the, 
the the enormity of the battle that you are constantly preparing for. Um, how is it different? And, and this is probably an entire book, so I apologize for the question in advance. <laughs> Good, I need a but, new book. But but oh. how is it different approaching depression and mania? Like right, there 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 are different different battle calls and, and different approaches. Very much so. Um, mania, just as I said before, there's not a whole lot of self awareness, so there's not a whole lot of coping skills that go into getting you know, avoiding getting manic other than, um, I don't drink. I've been sober for over 20 years. Um, and I don't use drugs and I try to get enough sleep. So I guess there are coping skills that you use, but with depression, depression really is the battle that I, that I fight more often. Um, that boy, that is a tough one because it, it takes everything you've got to, See yourself sliding into depression and catch yourself before you get to the point of suicidality. And some of the tricks that I have, for example, are if I can say it's depression talking, you know, I have these terrible negative thoughts and hopeless ideas and fears about the future and and self-hatred. And if I can say to myself, Terry, that's depression talking. It puts this separation between me and the depression, just a little sliver, but sometimes that is, that's enough so that I can call my therapist, call my psychopharmacologist who manages my psychiatric medication, get my medication adjusted. Um, it gives me the ability not to lose myself totally in the emotion and to just step back and analyze it. Because I have what's called rapid cycling, where I cycle quite um, quickly between moods, maybe in the course of a day. And uh, it can be very hard to catch myself in between moods. But when I do, I can say, all right, your, your cycles maybe last four days, so you just have to hold on until Thursday. It's depression talking. And... You can do that. You can hold on until Thursday. So that's one of my one of my best tools, I think. It seem I'm thinking of a, a story you tell about being at a dinner party, and you want to go to the dinner party, right? Like you can kind of feel right. you're you're in the depre- beginnings of the depression, but you want to go because you're an extremely social person. And I don't know if you realize, like <laughs> you, you talk. The, it was so interesting too because you clearly have such wonderful, close, long lasting relationships with family and and an inordinate amount of friends um, that that you maintain. And I think that seemed so. Um, unique for so many people who experience depression, right? Where I'm, I'm thinking of Johan Hari's book, um, Lost Connections, and, and his focus on the mm-hmm. the shift in society where people don't have friendships, they don't have those connections, and that certainly isn't the case for you. Um, you've, Boy, you've, I never thought of it that way. You just put my life in such a beautiful uh, light. Thank you. But so you're at the, you want to go to this party. Um, and, and yet right. you realize, and you've got so many additional, like, you have this, 
throughout like there's so many elements weighing on you when you're trying to make these choices because you're realizing you know you're making a decision what's best for me and then you want to go to this party you don't want to disappoint your friends you don't want to seem weird um you don't want to let anyone down um you're struggling about well what if i'm just honest and 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 so you go and then you're sort of you know where are the boundaries as far as how miserable do you let yourself be um (laughs) yet wanting to to try to be happy um is it something are those all the things you're conscious of at the time or just later when you're writing about it no very much at the time it's it's socializing is always full of a lot of fraught decisions about whether i'm capable of showing up if i show up am i going to behave correctly um And this all comes out of fear from, you know, that was generated in the past. I think I'm much better at dealing with it now, but I have always been a watcher. I watch from the outside how other people behave so that I can, you know, sort of normalize my own response and act the way they do. It's it's ongoing. But I try not to, I try not to, uh, appear when I'm manic at places. I really do try to spare people that because it can really suck the life out of a room. Or you could be the life of the party, right? Right. Up to a certain point. Up to point. a certain point. You know, that's the problem. You never, yeah. you, when you're manic, you really never know how to control that, that escalation from being a uh, soul, you know, just, so much fun to soul sucking that that is always a problem well again i think like there is that intense level of um of empathy right like of of an empath or someone who's extremely sensitive Mm -hmm. um or highly highly tuned but even beyond what people think of as as someone who is is you know to you it can be excruciatingly highly tuned and and cause you to have this constant struggle with balancing the internal and the, the external forces one thing that surprised me when you were talking about depression um is you saying that what well, didn't surprise me, but it made me think a lot, which is which is great, right? That alone feels safe, that it asks nothing of you, um, right. but that it turns out it's it's the least safe if you allow yourself right. to to go into that safety. It is so ironic. It's the it's what you want the most in the world is you you turn into Greta Garbo. You just want to be alone, and. Yet isolation is the worst thing you can do when you're depressed. I, you know, isolating, I think the way we're doing in during COVID-19 is different from isolating when you're depressed because when you're depressed, you, you don't answer the phone, you don't return texts or emails. You just, you, you become this hermit and you believe no one loves you because you're not reaching out to anyone. So it really does just escalate, unfortunately. And you can't, right? Like that, that I think was so valuable for you to say over and over throughout the book so that people can hear it. Cause maybe it takes a dozen times, right? That like, you're not being lazy. You're not being right. self-absorbed. Like you can't get up and get in the shower 
um, even though you realize like, yeah, that's the, the smart thing to do or would be the better thing to do. Right. And, that, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's, that is something I don't think a lot of people understand about depression. I have a blog for Psychology Today, and I wrote about uh, something called psychomotor retardation. And psychomotor retardation is a kind of paralysis that you get when you're depressed of both the mind and the, uh, and the body. The will to move is just not there. Like I'm, I'm looking at a pen on my desk right now that's about a foot away. And for me to pick up that pen when I'm severely depressed, I would just have to stare at it for 15 to 20 minutes and just force my arm to go towards the pen. You know, it just doesn't want to move. And so many people responded to that blog. It shocked me. They said they didn't, they had it too, but they didn't know it had a name or they didn't realize that anyone else experienced it, which just broke my heart because I think so many people do. Um, it's, it's the most terrifying part of depression for me. Well, and, and with it comes in your description, like the, the most illogical contradiction, but so enlightening. The fact that one reason you don't want to get into the shower is because you are so highly sensitized that that water hitting your skin is going to be like literally torture, painful torture. And I, agony. Yeah. and I think that was, I, I just had to keep thinking about that over and over because I think we have this idea, even if we're mildly depressed, right. Of that we are, we aren't somehow like alive and, and feeling um, that uh -huh. we're, we're like this lethargic, like non um, alive thing where, it actually is the opposite in, in the way that you describe right. it. Like it's too... Well, the horror of it, yeah. you, you feel pain so intensely. Mm -hmm. You can't feel the other stuff, the good mm -hmm. stuff, mm -hmm. but you can feel the pain at a technicolor level. Throughout the book, you talk about being both fragile and as strong as steel. Um and you say it takes exceptional courage to exist on a few faint memories of light and outlast depression. And yes. you, you talk about a story um, going to the Hollywood Bowl and you say, you know, you're really debating, like, do you want to go or not? And this great friend is really encouraging you. And, you know, you have all the, the usual struggles of not wanting to let him down and deciding. And then what, you talk about once you're there that the there's a moment that comes where happiness and joy is starting to kind of poke at you and you right. are adamantly trying to keep up this barrier and not let it in um it is what's insane. going on in it's that insane. moment you know, I have a phrase for it that my friends absolutely hate. I call it honoring the depression. Mm -hmm. When you're depressed, it's strange. It's almost like you don't want to let go of it because you're so afraid you're going to be disappointed. And you don't want to believe in hope because that's not what your brain has been operating. That's not the, the wavelength your brain has been operating in. So there was a 
there were 15 years where I uh, facilitated a support group at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute. And I remember this from not just me, but everyone else there had such a hard time saying, I feel better. And I thought that was fascinating. Why did we, why couldn't we let go of the depression and the pain? And, and I think you really do feel like the gods are watching and they're going mm-hmm. to, you know, the lightning bolt's going to strike you because it's just terrifying. The thought that you might be getting better, but then you might not. And that disappointment would be almost fatal. Imagine that in our Judeo-Christian culture feeling that we, <laughs> we yes. might get knocked down by the evil eye if we, if we you right. know, say things are good. Like, and and, and right. that it's, it's, in a way, it seems like odd, right, or contradictory, but then it makes so much mm-hmm. sense when you think about, like, there's always a why, you know, self-preservation, especially when you're in a place where you're feeling so vulnerable and so at risk and so afraid, Um you know, again, just the typical adage of "oh, the our our known unpleasant situation is safer than than the unknown." And then the flip side of that is, yeah, like what if we what if we say things are good or they're happy? Like then what? Then what are we opening right. our, ourselves up to? And your experience is just alarmingly magnified, but it's operating on the same what? the same role. Yeah, it's that "what if we hope" dilemma. What if we hope? Um, there's a wonderful cartoon I saw that had that said, or it was it was on the internet. It said, "What if? But um, but what if I fall? Oh my dear! But what if you fly?" And I love that. I love the notion that you might let go of your fear and actually fly, and just let yourself do it. And that that could be okay, right? That that could be safe. Yeah, yeah, that so, could be safe. Yeah, so, safety is a big concept. Yeah. Right. Like right. in in a average day, it 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 guides so many of our choices. But when you're in this hyper fragile state, I I you know I don't think one can imagine um, how that takes on a new level of um, priority to, to stay safe. Yeah. My therapist is always sort of joking with me, oh, it's the safety issue again. And it is. It's about self-preservation at a very fundamentally deep level, um, particularly when you've been as depressed as to be suicidal. Yeah. You know, you just, you need to hold on to yourself as closely as possible. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about doctors and, and, and therapists and um Trying to sure. talk talk in a minute though, <laughs> talking to not but it, okay. it, it pinged me again because I was so mad when I was reading and that the therapists were telling you, um, you know, oh, well, throughout your life we'll talk about it now throughout your life like friends <laughs> and doctors and therapists telling you oh two things you know one oh you're you're too accomplished and too successful to to have a mental illness and you seem just fine right. um, crazy making right. um, and then the other yeah. that. The other part of that is, oh well, you're you're not very good at dealing with stress. <laughs> like every right. time you think of oh. it, you must want to just go drive over there and smack that person. I did. <laughs> Thank you for getting mad for me. I appreciate <sighs> that. Yes, it was it was crazy making to um, to know that 
I cope with more stress on a daily level than this doctor probably ever has experienced in a, in a month or maybe her life. And for her to tell me, you don't deal with stress very well, just was such a terrible message to implant in my brain. But about the high functioning part, that can be very um, tricky. I am high functioning and many people with bipolar disorder are. There are CEOs and many artists and um, throughout history there are, you know, you can point to just dozens and dozens of celebrated people with bipolar disorder. But it makes you wonder sometimes about, am I really sick or am I just pretending? Um, I, I call it self-stigma. You know, do I deserve compassion for what I'm experiencing? Or is this just, you know, a game I'm playing because I'm not homeless. I'm not on the street. Um, do I deserve to feel bad for myself? And that can be a real, that can be as poisonous as stigma from the outside world, self-stigma. So, so let's talk about stigma a little bit, because I, I think it's okay. connected to where we're going as far as the labels, because you say, you know, labels can be fantastic. You talk about that, like the, the, you, you argued in a, a symposium that, that actually labels had value and, and they, they do in certain situations. And then again, for you and your struggle, I'm sure they didn't because you have this idea that, well, if you're successful, then you can't have mental illness, right? Like that, that it's these right. either ors that like, once you're labeled, you have to abide by all of the elements of the characteristics in that label, right? It can't be like, well, no, right. I'm this and I'm that. And I think that was what's so infuriating to me about those doctors. Like, I just want to be like, are you just that much of an idiot? Like, how can you be involved with this patient to say, oh, you're, you're taking, why are you taking all this medication? Or, or even at the, 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 the mental institution to say, oh, well, you know, you, you're, you, your problem is stress. Well, yeah, duh. Right. Like I just, it, it just boggles the mind. Like, like the, that I they know. must somehow not be willing to really look at the big picture, right? They've become some, so linear, um, either in their beliefs yeah. or their approach, um, which which has I think connects right in into stigma. And, and Ellen Sachs described your book as a stigma buster. Um, was that yeah. part of your intention in, in writing Modern Madness, this third memoir? Oh, absolutely. I have stopped practicing law to become a mental health advocate, and I really. I really feel the call to destigmatize mental illness because it, it's it's just terrible that you would have to fight a battle, as we've been saying, and yet having other people add to that battle as you're fighting it yourself, it, it's just so unfair and it feels it feels unjust and maybe that's the lawyer in me wanting to fight the injustice of it. I think it's unjust and it's also so counterproductive and not only for those with mental illness, but for just every individual, right? Because if you think about why, why are they trying to so hard to talk you out of your feelings and your experience right. and your diagnosis? Right. And that's true, I think, for many people, not just the mentally ill. I right. think a, a lot of us get talked out of our feelings, which is really a shame. 
from the time we're little, right? Oh, you're not hungry. Right. Oh, you're not. That didn't hurt. Right. Um, no, you don't feel that way. No, you don't want that. Um, you know, no, what you want to do isn't isn't right. And my father used to tell me whenever I was nervous about something at school, oh, you're not shy. You know, and I'd be just paralyzed with shyness. And yeah. he would be telling me, you're not shy. And he meant well. But, yeah. um, but then just, what he, am I, right? Like, exactly the opposite, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and then what so about I, these feelings? And I think I think right. that's so powerful that you talk about that in the book so clearly, like that you get to a place where you can acknowledge the feeling, right? And, and be yes. with it and truthful about it and that that's what you need others to do is to hold you didn't describe it this way but i'm gonna say it this way and then you you describe it it your way that you want the people to hold space for you right you you talk about the magic rules let me say what that is and then we can talk about that in more depth okay uh what are the magic rules for the rule for how to treat people with bipolar disorder uh, well, I have a cause when it comes to that, and it's do not give advice. Bite your tongue if you can, um, because it's human nature to want to try to fix it. And that's the last thing in the world that you want is to be fixed out of your feelings. So I advocate that people just sit down with someone who's suffering and say, tell me where it hurts. Five little words, tell me where it hurts. And it has such an amazing effect. Um, I've seen it over and over and over again that where advice will shut someone down because they feel judged and they feel um, like they can't do what you're advising because they simply are having enough trouble moving and breathing. But when you say, tell me where it hurts and you really listen, um, it lets some of that darkness and despair out of the person. And, and when the darkness hits the light, it can dissipate somewhat. So it's just an astonishing technique that I don't see practice very much. And I, and I wish more people would try. Something struck me that you said in, in relation to that was that, and you, you mentioned it a few times in the book, in different situations mm-hmm. where... The magic is when you are seen and heard and that the, the, the yeah. strongest propulsion in, in, in your desires and in, in so many situations is to be authentically seen and heard. And, and so it makes sense that like that's the desire and also the solution and that to be then validated, right? Like, I'm telling you, this is what I feel. And this is what's happening with me. And for the person, because it's challenging, right? As we've seen, um, even for doctors, like to, to just hold the space for the other person to allow them to express what they are feeling as uncomfortable as it may be for everyone involved and for the other person not to be triggered right and for them not to feel like oh well i i don't want to know because then i'll have to fix it which isn't what you want anyway Um, or that i won't be able to fix it or that wow maybe i feel some of that too or it's just too scary for who knows what reason it is very hard to listen i'm not i'm not going to sugarcoat it it's 
you don't always want to hear what's going to come out of a depressed person's mouth because their their viewpoint on life is pretty bleak at that moment, and it can be really difficult to listen. But you have to tell yourself it's depression talking. It's not it's not really reality. I mean, it is reality for that person, but it's depression talking, and depression is is a nasty, horrible beast to listen to. And I think this is one of those areas that I was talking about where there's a parallel for every person on this planet. Like we so often don't want to hear what's going to come out of our own mouth about how we're authentically feeling, right? Because it's not how we're supposed to feel or it's too scary or it's going to lead me to have to force myself to make choices that I'm not comfortable making that are are too scary. But, you know, you you kind of are sparking this thought process in me right now. I, I think that desire for authenticity comes out of my obsession with fear for so much of my life. I was so afraid of being authentic that I think I've probably, you know, gone a little overboard in the other direction maybe, but um, I saw what not being authentic led to, and it led to suicide for me. And that's just, that's just not acceptable anymore. Um, so if it takes me making other people a little uncomfortable, I'd much rather do that than have them be mourners at my funeral. It's incredible, like what a, a process, um, lengthy process um, you've been in, in, emerged in. And you talk about being 10 years to get the, the bipolar um, diagnosis. And then beyond that, it wasn't like, oh, okay, well, now I'm set. Um, yeah. you, you, you said for years, you thought you were just incredibly cranky, and that you didn't realize yeah. that this was a new symptom of, of your disorder, which is ever changing. Um, yes, I, that took me a lot of research to realize that there's something called a mixed state. It's also called agitated depression, which may be a better term. It's where the worst parts of depression, the self-loathing, the, the desperation, the, you know, just the, the absolute hatred of life mingles and mixes with the restlessness and the irritability and the impulsivity of mania so that you have this terrible, perfect storm and it's the state in which most people in which most suicides are committed um, or attempted. It's really scary that not more people know about it because I just read a study recently that 40% of people with bipolar disorder will experience a mixed state at some point in their lifetime. And it is, it's a pretty terrifying thing to go through. So if it wasn't challenging enough, um, let's throw in the challenges of medication, because as you talk about that, I'm thinking about the rapid cycling. And then you talked about how one of the antidepressants can actually trigger it. And that, you know, people, the the amount of of not just misinformation, but uninformed um, medicating that goes on with trying to treat the illness you talk about having a um an experience with an antidepressant that's 
often given to people who have just um, situational depression. Um, and, and you read all of the, the potential side effects and, and all the, the, you know, educated yourself. And yet um, you were never informed about what it was going to be like to go off of it. Um, and it took you a month of like incredible suffering. Like, we aren't just talking about, oh, my stomach kind of hurts. Um, yeah. that you suffered was, with for a month, not realizing, month. right? Actually, or longer. You didn't it was realize. actually longer than a month. Oh. Um, and I did not connect it to going off the medication. You know, doctors don't tell you, you can't just go off these medications. You have to taper down very slowly under your doctor's guidance. And it makes me furious. It, it wasn't in the, um, the little booklet you get, you know, that I read the tiny prints. I, I read everything and I couldn't make that connection. Um, it was called the fancy term for it was serotonin discontinuation syndrome. But that was a drug company uh, term. And the real word for it was withdrawal. I was going through withdrawal. And, and, and akin to like, like a heroin, heroin withdrawal from your description. Yes. yes. Oh, I was shaking. I was throwing up. I was just so ill. And it just wouldn't go away. Uh, it was really, really horrible. And I think one of the problems we face in America is that most people get prescribed whatever drug they're taking by their primary care physician. And one in five Americans is on some kind of psychiatric medication, if you can believe that. Um, the, psychi the, the psychiatric medication needs to be carefully watched and tweaked and, you know, adjusted according to your mood, and you can't just go off it. But I don't think there's the sophistication that, with primary care doctors in a lot of cases, they will prescribe an antidepressant, say Prozac, which might actually make you manic if you don't have a mood stabilizer along with it. So this, there is a lot of misinformation, as you said. And, and my hope and dream is that people, the healthcare system will be fixed enough in the future that people will be able to afford to go see a psychopharmacologist who is a doctor who specializes in just these medications because it really is an art form as much as a skill. Well, you've become a chemist yourself, and even with having that <laughs> specialist, you suffered for, you know, longer than a, over a month debilitating physical experience because of this that that then it was like, oh, yeah, it's it's that. Like, okay, let me give well, you another part medication. Of, part of that, and I did take another medication for it and got better, but part of the problem isn't just the doctors, um, and I don't want to blame the patients, yeah. but I didn't contact my psychopharmacologist uh -huh. when I was that ill. I thought it was something physical, quote. Um, and a lot of patients don't contact their doctors enough because they don't, they don't have an easy time telling them what's going on inside their minds and their bodies. And I think we lack a good vocabulary for mental illness, which is one of the main things I'm hoping to do with Modern Madness and with my other books is to describe what's really going on in ways that other people can use so they can let their doctors know um, 
what's happening and we can be treated more effectively because that vocabulary really is lacking. We don't talk enough about these situations to really feel comfortable with them. And we also, I think in America, we experience white coat worship where we're just afraid to bother our doctors, which I think is really silly. That's their job. It's funny, like maybe that will start to change too with with the the new shift in because you said you know this was so. physical that it wasn't the mental and for so long there was that separation right. um, and that shifting. But I've got to say because you said twice in America, but I I was my brother lives in China and I was talking to him when uh-huh. when I was in the middle of your book and I had just read the section. It was one of those synchronicities on this new antidepressant that had caused you all this grief that I think had focused on serotonin levels. And he said he and, and he brought it up. He He's like, we were talking somehow about about anxiety and depression. And he said, oh, you know, one of my old employees, like she's so fabulous and she feels so, so depressed and unhappy. And her doctor, he was just alarmed that her doctor had just sort of, you know, here, try this, this new antidepressant, because her boyfriend had broken up with her and she was experiencing such heartache. And so he was saying how right. how terrible that was for so many reasons to, to prescribe away the experience. Um, and I was like, right. oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I think that's the antidepressant <laughs> that um, Terry was talking about in her book. And, and he said, yes, she was she had gone off of it and had experienced. Um, you know, I think hadn't been on as long as you had, but had experienced similar physical um, oh, symptoms. Wow. And and again, exactly as you said, was just prescribed by a, a doctor who just handed it out and never, you know, contacted her again. So, yeah, it makes me angry when doctors just, uh, you know, hand out an antidepressant because somebody's having a bad situation. Um, they don't even think about you know, short-term therapy, which might be just what the person needs. I mean, it's just become so, I call it mind candy. I mean, they just hand out the mind candy and it's really dangerous. And it's it's also, as you and mentioned, it, harmful to people who really do have severe mental illness um, because well, the price is skyrocketing the and... Yeah. And um, it, it's right. challenging in other ways. Okay, so we only have a few minutes. And while we do, because you've just brought up another contradiction that I hadn't even put together until mm, now, okay. was in one hand, we're handing out antidepressants and all kinds of pharmaceuticals for people that are experiencing, you know, a, a situational reaction um, of, of one degree or another. And then on the flip side, we have such a huge pandemic of anxiety. And with that, we treat it the other way and say, you said, I got to find it what you said. Um, it was kind of uh, something about like, and maybe you remember, but like, just, you know, oh, here it is. Um, you say we still consider anxiety to be a character defect, a moral failing that we could be right. cured if a person showed a little more grit and just kind of bucked up, right? Be tougher. Right. Um, so what a I contradiction. Yes. And I I think people are probably beginning to understand that now that the depression and anxiety rate are going up so high that it it isn't it has nothing to do with your character. It has something to do with the chemicals in your brain. And this is one area where you say that you feel like um, there really are effective alternative um, methods to uh, 
make differences and that the, the, there are more effective, you can learn more effective ways to cope with stress and that this will actually lay new neural pathways um, that can yes. prevent further damage and, and maybe uh, create a, habit, a different habitual response and, and get rid of those right. triggers. The brain is plastic. It's always learning. So you have the opportunity to remold it in some ways with things like therapy and mindfulness and meditation. Now for bipolar disorder, because it is a chemical imbalance, you need to treat with medication. But those other, uh, let's call them alternative remedies, are also part of the package that you really need to bring to bear on, on your illness. So I'm hoping I can coax you to come back on the show another time and we can talk about more more focused on on anxiety and um, the mind body connection and the shifts that are are taking uh, place there. Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's really becoming um, it's really something that people are beginning to look at with some depth and I'm I'm just thrilled about that. Well I feel like in opposition to the challenge that you face with bipolar, there's so much complexity, there's so many elements, um, there's such a, a balance of getting your pharmaceutical cocktail right and doing the talk therapy. And it it seems like with anxiety, um, although it's complex for people that are experiencing extreme anxiety, that there's a space where we can, there's a, a recent study that they did at Yale focused on working with kids with um, debilitating anxiety and that before they would just focus on therapy with the kids, but they shifted to working with the parents and oh. how the parents reacted to it. And they found that it was phenomenal that, that by doing exactly like what you mentioned in the book, by holding space, by not denying the child that right. they're feeling this intense anxiety. And, and so naming it with them, wow, you're really feeling this. And I can understand that's so, so fear, scary and painful. Um, and then instilling in them uh, the sense that I'm here for you, you can do this, right? Not, not just that, not just like, oh, buck up, have some grit, you can do right. this. But that combination, that yeah. combination yeah. of hearing them, holding space, acknowledging it, and then supporting them in developing their own coping um, skills. What a wonderful study. I love that. I'm going to have to look that up. Because you mentioned naming it, and naming it, I think, is, is the key. You've got to name these feelings and then express them. That's the answer. And I notice in in a, a lot of institutions that are starting to acknowledge, oh yeah, anxiety is real. You know, a lot of people have anxiety, severe anxiety. Yeah. We want to deal with it. Even that there's another step, right, of putting the systems in place. Um, it's one thing to right. say, oh yes, but then you have to make sure. And I'm not sure they're often that complex, um, but to allow for uh, the individual experience and support them in in having a positive right. a positive um, outcome. So. Yes, I agree with you. And your book, uh, Modern Madness, does exactly that, right? It it holds the space um, for everyone to really examine and explore, and then offer some some coping techniques and and some support. So again, I'll end where I started. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you reading the book so closely. I can really feel it, and it makes me very, very uh, honored. Thank you. Okay. It was wonderful, wonderful talking to you, Terry. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.